0: But I've been promising for a while to try to do an overview of Jesus' return. And Isaiah 63, which theoretically is our text this evening, gives us a decent excuse, decent opportunity to look at the chronology, the choreography, the chain of events leading up to the return of Jesus. We're going to look at the first half dozen verses of Isaiah 63. Um, we've been studying Isaiah 63, for or Isaiah, I should say, for about a year now. Um, and, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds and lose the forest. So for a while I've been saying, hey, we'll take an evening and, and take a step back and see the forest as we wrap up our study through Isaiah over these next few weeks. We don't have time to dive deep into anything I'm going to talk about we're gonna stay 30,000 feet or or try to at least. For some of you, that's gonna be enough. For some of you, that's gonna be exactly what you've been looking for, what you've been asking for. Can we get the panorama perspective? For some of you, it's gonna whet your appetite and it's gonna leave you hungry for some deep dive. If that's you, grab me afterwards and I'd be glad to point you to some resources. The first book I will point you toward on this subject is a book called Footprints of the Messiah by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I've mentioned them a number of times. Through our study in Isaiah. Um, He's one of my go-to guys uh, for all things messianic. He is, as as you might guess from his name, uh, a messianic believer, and he has wonderful, wonderful insight reading scripture from a Jewish perspective, and and if we don't, we lose so much resolution. It's his chronology that I'm going to lean on tonight. It's not the only way of reading scripture, and I'm gonna focus on the parts that I agree with. If you pick up footsteps of the Messiah, there are some things that I don't necessarily see eye to eye with, but that's okay. We get to hold these things in an open hand. But his perspective on Isaiah 63 specifically, I find compelling, and obviously, that's where we're gonna anchor tonight. But let's start further back. Let's start way, way back. Let's start in Matthew 23. We visited this chapter a lot. As we've studied through Isaiah, and we've studied, we, we were there a lot when we were in Romans, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Just, here's, here's my Bible tonight, just to give you an idea of. Well, you've got the outline in front of you. You can see. It's paper cut evening here at Calvary Chapel. But Matthew 23, it, it's useful to, to realize that by the time we get there, By the time the events of Matthew 23 are happening shortly before the crucifixion, Israel's already made up her mind. The scribes, the Pharisees, they've long since rejected Jesus. That happened all the way back in Matthew 12. Remember, Jesus was doing miracles, and they said, you're doing miracles in the power of Beelzebub. You're doing miracles in the power of Satan. Jesus says, no, I'm not, and that's a really dopey idea. But by saying that I am, which I'm not, you're saying that I'm not who I say that I am. You're saying that I'm not the Messiah. And that's when the scribes and Pharisees went too far. That's when, instead of bringing deliverance, Jesus flips the switch and he says, okay, you're asking me to bring judgment. That's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I hoped to do. But you've left me no choice. He continues to minister from Matthew 12 on, continues even to do miracles. But if you go back and reread it on your own, if you look carefully at Matthew 13 on, his focus is no longer the salvation of Israel. His focus from that point on is the training of the 12. You can dig into that on your own. I'm getting into the weeds and I said I wasn't going to do that. For our purposes tonight, by the time we get to Matthew 23, the fate of Israel has long since been settled, but Jesus still spends the whole chapter declaring, declaring the condemnation, especially of the scribes and Pharisees, but by extension, because of their faulty leadership, the whole nation. And he mourns. He weeps over Jerusalem. He says, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. see, See what you've done, verse 38. Your house is left you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've looked at this many times here and in Romans, but it's a key passage. Jesus is saying, okay, because of your choice, your people are going to be scattered, your temple is going to be left desolate, and I'm going to be absent until the leadership that rejected me accepts me. Not the same people, obviously. But still the leadership of Israel acting on behalf of the nation who said, I'm not the Messiah, change their minds, repent of their choice and confess that I am the Messiah and ask me to return. It's the same thing that we read in Hosea, even more succinctly. By the way, a thousand and one different verses tonight you know how you're going to do this best. If you want to flip and, and 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 put eyes on it, that's what I tend to do because I'm a visual learner. So if flipping pages is, is going to help you, do that. If you're more of an auditory processor and flipping pages is just going to get in the way, don't feel compelled to turn to a page just because I'm going to read from it. Um, that's why the outline, that's why the verse references are there. If, if you want to just listen and then go back and put eyes on it and, and put notes next to it on your own. Do, do what works for you. Like I said, it's a crazy kind of an evening. Hosea 5.15, the end of Hosea uh, chapter 5. I will return again to my place. We read the words of Jesus spoken prophetically through Hosea. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So far, this is well-traveled ground, right? But a useful starting place, especially for some who might be joining us in progress. From that point, what happens? From that point, God hits pause on his dealings with Israel. Remember the prophecy that Gabriel gave Daniel in Daniel chapter 9? Daniel's lamenting, okay, is this the end of Israel? As, as, As he was there in Babylon, there in exile. Gabriel came to encourage him and said, no, this isn't going to be the end of of Israel. The exile is going to end. Israel is not done. God's not done with Israel. Israel's history will continue. In fact, Gabriel puts numbers to it. He says, from the time that the command is given to rebuild the walls, there'll be 483 years of history that you can look forward to. He takes it down to the day. But then, at the end of that... Messiah, When when, when Messiah is cut off, there's going to be another seven years, but not right away. This is the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. 69 weeks of years, 69 times 7, 483 years that are going to happen from 445 B.C. until 32 A.D. or so, correcting for the 360-day Babylonian calendar and leap days and, and, and so forth. That takes us to the day of Jesus' crucifixion. At that point, Daniel told us, Gabriel told us through Daniel, God will hit pause on his dealings with Israel and the church age will begin. And that church age has continued for the last 2,000 years with God's dealings with Israel largely on hold. I say largely because Israel has still been preserved and protected, and even regathered as a nation, none of which would be possible if God were not keenly interested in Israel having a future. Israel would not exist as a nation if God's hand were not upon them. But the consequence of Israel's rejection of her Messiah also weighs heavily upon them. So fast forward the tape. Fast forward the tape even from where we are this evening. Fast forward the tape until sometime after the church age has ended. Sometime after the rapture. Minutes after? Days after? Weeks? Months? We don't know. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, but we don't know how pre is. But sometime after the end of the church age the final seven years of Israel's history, the final seven years spoken of by Gabriel to Daniel and Daniel 9 begins. And we read a lot about those seven years, don't we? Places like Jeremiah 30 I'm going to flip, you can join me or not. Jeremiah 30 Not one of the passages that we go to most commonly to read about the tribulation, but I'm going there for a particular reason. Jeremiah 30, verse 4. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. I went to Jeremiah 30 specifically for that phrase, time of Jacob's trouble. We call it the tribulation. We call it the 70th week of Daniel. We call that seven-year period by a lot of names. And, And all of those are descriptive, but Jeremiah reminds us well, of what Gabriel told us, that Israel is uniquely in God's sights during those seven years. When the church is removed, God turns his attention back to Israel with one objective, Israel's repentance. The time of Jacob's trouble, the time of laboring. We see that idiom again and again in prophetic scripture and also in the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Israel laboring to the point where they're ready to repent. The time of Jacob's trouble, the time in which that which can be shaken will be shaken. And unpacking the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, way beyond our scope this evening. But let's hit the high point, by which I mean the low point. Halfway through the tribulation, the tribulation begins with Antichrist brokering a treaty between Israel and her enemies. He's not Antichrist yet. He's just a coming world leader. He's a politician on the rise. And and he makes his bones, perhaps, brokering this treaty that promises Israel seven years of protection from the nations that surround her, peace that she's never had in in her history. Halfway through the seven years, you know this, the treaty is broken. Not just broken, Antichrist goes to the temple and demands to be worshipped. Jesus also speaks of this in Matthew 24. He calls it the abomination of desolation, connecting it to Daniel chapter 9, where Gabriel used the same term. And Matthew 24, Jesus says some interesting things about this. He says, Matthew 24, verse 15, When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Connect this back to, to Daniel chapter 9, in other words. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or are on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Jesus is saying, hey, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see this coming prince stand in the middle of the temple demanding to be worshipped, run. Don't walk, run. And run! And before then, pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Why? Because public transportation in Israel doesn't run on the Sabbath. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Why? As we're going to see, they're going to be running to the mountains. They're going to be running up dry riverbeds. You can't do that in the winter. Winter is the rainy season in Israel. And so their, their, their way of egress, their, their escape route, would, wouldn't be passable. Why are they fleeing? They're fleeing because Antichrist has betrayed them. The same politician who promised, who brokered this treaty with promises to protect them, has now broken it, Worse than that, he's standing in their temple, mocking them. He's inviting the nations, the nations that he once promised to protect them from. He's inviting the nations to persecute them. If that weren't enough, Revelation 12 gives us another reason. Revelation 12 gives us another reason that Israel at this point, halfway through the seven years, should be afraid, should be very, very afraid. Satan comes to earth. It's interesting the number of believers who are convinced that Satan comes to earth and immediately possesses, demonically possesses, Antichrist. I think that's possible. I don't know that I can prove that from Scripture. I think that was popularized by some fiction writers back in the 90s. I'm not saying it doesn't happen that way. I'm I'm saying that's a little bit of conjecture. What we know for sure... Revelation 12 is that Satan comes hating the Jews as much as he ever has, which is a lot. Verse 13, when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he'd been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman is Israel, the child is Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years, half a time is half a year for the second three and a half years of the tribulation. At least some of Israel makes their way out of Jerusalem, out of Israel altogether to a place in the wilderness that God has prepared for them. Excuse me. Not all of Israel heeds Jesus' warning. Some of Israel flees. A lot of Israel remains. And a lot of those who remain perish. Zechariah 13. There are band-aids available after the service. Zechariah 13, um, verse 8. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off And die. Between the machinations, the persecution of Antichrist and Satan, whether they're spiritually joined together or working in separately but in concert, two thirds, two thirds of the world's Jewish population is slaughtered. Hitler only managed a third. Two thirds. It's staggering. But God always preserves a remnant. Remember Habakkuk 3.2, even in judgment, God remembers mercy. And God has promised again and again throughout our study of Isaiah that he will once again, even in this time of persecution, even in this time of judgment, preserve a remnant. If we make our way back to Isaiah, we encounter that idea all the way back in Isaiah 10. Feels like a long time ago that we were in Isaiah 10. Probably because it was. Isaiah 10, look at verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such have escaped the house of Jacob, Jerusalem, will never again depend on him who defeated them. They won't depend on Antichrist in his treaties anymore, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as of the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. God promising to preserve that remnant. We see something similar in Isaiah 41. Flip a few pages there and we'll pick it up in verse 8. Isaiah 41, verse 8, You, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you and have not cast you away, at least have not cast you away permanently, have not cast you away forever, fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I'm your God still. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now it gets interesting. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I'll help you. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And he continues along the same lines, God promising to protect, God promising, look down to verse 17, promising to preserve. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'll open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I'll plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I'll set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they might see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. We looked at that verse when we were making our way through and we said, okay, is that a millennial prophecy? It might be. It might also be a tribulation prophecy because the second half of the tribulation is where the whole mark of the beast thing kicks in where you can't buy or sell without pledging to worship Antichrist, this remnant of Israel will obviously refuse to do that. So how do they provide for themselves? How do they feed themselves and how do they get water? I think it's possible God just promised to do for them what he's done before, to provide for them supernaturally in the wilderness. But where is this wilderness? Where is this place of protection? Jesus, in Matthew 24, the passage we read a little while ago, described it as a mountainous place and a wilderness place. Isaiah 33, it's kind of like review night. Isaiah 33, if you'll recall, narrows the list of candidates quite a bit, actually. Isaiah 33, look at verse 13. Here, you who are far off what I've done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might... The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks, answer, he who walks up righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. So that sort of reinforces our speculation from Isaiah 41 that God will supernaturally be providing, once again, bread and water in the wilderness. But where? It's a place on high. It's a fortress of rocks. Now, when we were in Isaiah 33, we lateraled to Micah 2.12. So we'll do that again tonight, if I can remember where Micah is. And in Micah 2.12, we read, I'll surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I'll surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the middle of their pasture. If you're you're flipping around, we're going to come back to Micah 2.12 before we're done. But I think that we just pin down the exact location. Because the rock city of Petra, known in the Bible as Basra, Basra literally means sheepfold. And if you've ever seen pictures, or some of you might have even been there, the only way in to Petra is through a mile-long passage that is canyon high and and only two or three people wide. You can only walk in or walk go in by horseback or maybe if you have a little beep, beep, zip bang vespa but other than that you can't take trucks buses tanks it's a great naturally defended location what about antichrist I thought it, at this point Antichrist was exerting his power, had consolidated the nations into a one world government and was basically flexing his authority over the whole world. Interesting, Daniel chapter 11 verse 41 specifies there's one zip code that Antichrist is not able to exert power over. We don't know exactly why, but Daniel 11:41 41 says that Antichrist is unable to conquer Edom, Moab, or Ammon. Collectively, we call those territories today Jordan, but Basra is in Edom. Basra, Petra, is in the south of Jordan. And I I think we talked about how, how Petra today has been stockpiled with all manner of Christian resources. Gospel resources and prophecies and prophecy resources and commentaries by Christians like us reading the Bible like we are saying, "Wow, God has prepared a place for you. This is where the remnant of Israel is going to be." We want to make sure they have the truth waiting for them when they get there. What's interesting is 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 that technically that shouldn't be necessary. Leviticus 26 in 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 the Hebrew Scriptures. They have what they need to reach the right conclusions. All the way back in the the writings of Moses, Leviticus 26, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unrighteousness, in which they were unfaithful to me, that they have also walked contrary to me, that I've also walked contrary to them, and that I've brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember. I will remember the land. And he continues on. He promises forgiveness if Israel repents. He promises restoration. He promises revival. If only Israel will turn from their wickedness and acknowledge their sin. What sin? That they rejected their Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, when does that happen? It happens at the end of the tribulation, Patrick. Are you not been paying attention? Okay, chronologically, yeah. We know that when they repent, Jesus returns. We know that when they repent is the end of the tribulation. That's what ends the tribulation. Let me ask it a different way then. What brings them to repentance? Okay, I guess that in a sense that question isn't better. The tribulation brings them to repentance. It's the whole purpose of the tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. So let me, ask, let me try again. What's the last straw? What's, what's the last shaking that finally breaks them? Answer, it's the onslaught of Antichrist and his armies don't have time for details because we're racing the clock as it is. But over the second half of the tribulation, Antichrist gains power, demands to be worshipped, grows, if it was possible, in hatred for those who resist him, the tribulation saints of the Jews. He's driven, maybe indwelt by Satan. The persecution of the Jews grows more and more and more intense. We've said before, this might be Satan's last-ditch effort to keep Jesus from returning. It's twisted logic, but then again, Satan is clinically insane, so, you know. But, but is, is Satan thinking, okay, Jesus said that he's not coming back until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until Israel repents. If there's no Israel to repent, then Jesus can't come back, and Satan gets to stay God of this world. I don't know that that's how Satan is thinking. I'd like to think that I don't think much like Satan anymore. <laughs> But it's at least possible. It would explain, it's one, it's one way to explain this, this monomaniacal hatred of the Jewish people. In any case, whatever thought or motivation, Antichrist gathers the armies of the world, those that he controls, in the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon. We, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. No fighting takes place there. It's actually a staging area. Um, Think England in World War II was a staging area for D-Day. The invasion happened in Normandy. The invasion happened in France. But England was the staging area. Jezreel Valley is going to be the staging area. But while the armies are gathering, Antichrist, they're leading them personally. He finds out that Babylon, the capital of his whole empire, has been destroyed. That's Revelation 18. That's also Jeremiah 50 and 51. As we get started in Jeremiah, we're going to have a chance to revisit this in spades. He's, he's gathering armies to attack Israel, specifically to attack Jerusalem. He gets word that his capital has been destroyed. Sound military strategy would be, okay, counterattack. We, we, we know where the army has, has massed. Let's go tackle them. Instead, he, he's got tunnel vision. Instead of going east, he goes south and, and, and goes after his original target, Jerusalem. Satan's not making tactical battlefield decisions. He's, he's going all in to destroy Jerusalem and, by extension, to destroy the Jewish people. So he attacks Jerusalem, meets much greater resistance than he expects. Zechariah 12 talks about how God supernaturally empowers Israel to fight back. Why? God doesn't want Jerusalem destroyed. Ultimately, though, interesting, even though supernaturally empowered, Jerusalem falls. Antichrist, they put up more fight than the Antichrist expects, but ultimately Jerusalem falls. Why? They haven't repented yet. So the city falls. Zechariah 14, more than half of the population is immediately enslaved, at which point Antichrist's army pivots and marches on Basra. Marches to the south of Jordan. And that's when it happens. Remember that we, we were in Hosea 5.15? 5, uh, Go back to Hosea if you're so inclined. And there's an unfortunate chapter break. I, I think... It, I think Chapter 6 is a continuation of the same thought. I'll return again to my place, 5.15, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they'll seek my face. In their affliction, they'll earnestly seek me. And then Hosea goes on to describe it. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he's torn, but he will heal us. He's stricken, but he'll bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll rise us, uh, raise us up that we might live in his sight. Israel repents. They're in Basra, they're in Petra. The greatest, arguably, I mean, we don't know for sure, but, but arguably, potentially, the greatest army ever assembled. It's future from where we're sitting, so technologically they're more advanced. We know numer- numerically they're going to be overwhelming I, I think that if, if if you go back to when the United States invaded uh, Iraq and and cut through Iraq like a knife through through butter, hot knife through butter, I think it, I think it, that's going to pale in comparison to Antichrist's army bearing down on Basra. And it's at that point that that remnant prays, and we talked about it in Isaiah fifty three, right? Isaiah fifty three is the prayer of repentance. It's, it's real acknowledging we despise Jesus. We didn't esteem him. We hid our faces from him. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. We thought he was dying for his sins. Turns out he was wounded for our transgression. The remnant prays. Oftentimes we call them the believing remnant. I don't know that they're believing until right up to the, at that point. And I think at that point, they become the repentant remnant. They confess, they, they, they plead, Jesus returns. God said that was the purpose of the tribulation. And it takes all of the tribulation, all of the disasters, all of the plagues, all of the persecution, and the imminent destruction at the hand of Antichrist to bring them to the point where they're ready to say, you know what? We were very, very, very wrong. Zechariah 13 We looked at verse 8. It shall come to pass in uh, all the land that two-thirds shall be cut off and die. But, he continues, one-third shall be left in it, and I'll bring the one-third through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. How are silver and gold refined and tested? By heating them up. By heating them up to the boiling point so the impurities can be skimmed off. In the tribulation, God turns up the heat beyond anything that I think we can imagine then they will call on my name Zechariah 13 9 and I'll answer them and I'll say this is my people and each one will say the Lord is my God I get that this is controversial because is Patrick saying that Jesus returns first to Basra? I am I thought that Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives I thought that the angel said that he was going to return in the same way that he left he did The angel said he's going to return the same way, from the clouds. Not to the same place. Patrick, you're nitpicking. I I think that the weight of Scripture, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, is is with this. We've already looked at Micah 2. I said we were going to go back there. Micah 2, I'll surely assemble you, Jacob. Gather the remnant of Israel. Put them together like sheep of the fold. Verse 13, the one who breaks open will come up before them. They'll break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. The one who breaks open will come before them. I think that's Jesus. As Antichrist armies are surrounding them, trying to figure out what to do, Jesus breaks the siege. Uh, I don't know that I'm convinced yet, Patrick. Okay, go to Habakkuk. Go to Habakkuk 3, verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. Where are Taman and Paran? They're near Basra. You haven't sold me yet. Okay, Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. Surely I have a bookmark. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that's in it, the world and all the things that come forth from it, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all of their enemies. He's utterly destroyed them, given them over to the slaughter. Skip down to verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. And he continues, but of course what clinches it, you thought we were never going to get here, but I think what clinches it is Isaiah 63. Let's actually look at our text for tonight. Isaiah 63, where Isaiah asks the question, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Dyed can also be translated reddened or crimsoned. Who is this coming from Basra, dressed in red? Answer. This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. There's only one person who can claim that title. There's only one person who can claim I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. There's only one who fits that description. But why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Red, the idea in the Hebrew is bright red or shining red. Remember in chapter 60, we saw three times in two verses the Shekinah glory will dwell over and around and throughout Jerusalem. Is he shining red because the Shekinah glory is surrounding him? That's a little bit speculative. But Revelation 19, we read the same thing of Jesus, that when Jesus returns, his garments are dripping in red. Jeremiah 49, we read the same thing. Isaiah 63, 3 confirms, I've trodden the wine presses alone, and from the people no one was with me. I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I've stained all my robes. Don't trip over Jesus saying that no one was with me. You might say to yourself, wait a minute. I thought in Revelation 19 that thousands upon thousands were with him, that we return with him. I thought Jude said that then thousands of ten thousands, right? We return with him, we accompany him, but Jesus is fighting alone. He's answering Israel's prayer. Remember chapter two, uh, chapter 62, verse 1, we saw Isaiah praying. What was he praying for? The deliverance of Israel. And remember Jesus' promise in chapter 61. What did he say? He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped at a comma. But we see the rest of it here, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus says, hey, I didn't do that second part yet. But he says in in chapter 63, The day of vengeance is in my heart. Chapter 63, verse 4. And the year of my redeemed has come. Jesus answers. Jesus delivers. Jesus does, verse 5, what no one else could, what no one else would. I looked, there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. We don't talk a lot about God's wrath. Probably not as much as we should. This is one of the places in scripture where it's on full display. Where his wrath is in, is in full view. There aren't many places like that. Noah, Revelation, obviously. And in fact, if we go to Revelation and we triangulate with what's happening here, we read about blood running neck deep to a horse for 200 miles. Where's 200, how do you get 200 miles? Well, if you do a little bit of math, from Edom to the Jezreel Valley, to Jerusalem. Jesus battling his way back through this amassed army. They didn't even make it all the way to Edom because there isn't enough room for him there. But he battles his way back from where they were laying siege in Basra all the way back to their staging area. And the blood runs like a river. Verse 6, I've trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And from, from, from there, Isaiah doesn't address the details of what happens next. We have to piece it together from elsewhere in Scripture. The battle continues all the way to Jerusalem. Antichrist is killed. We read about that in Isaiah 14. The army is still massed at Jerusalem. Jesus defeats them brutally. Zechariah 12, actually, we read about that. And then Zechariah 12 is another clue about where Jesus returns. He says he goes first to the tents of Judah. So to the outlying areas first, then to Jerusalem. You can track that down on your own. It's Zechariah 12, verses 7 to 9. Word of Jesus' return reaches Jerusalem, or the Spirit of God moves upon Jerusalem spontaneously, or both. The battle concludes. We read that at the end of Zechariah. And then all of the things associated with the end of the tribulation. Jerusalem is split, and and the sun and the moon are darkened, and there are earthquakes, and the season of judgment concludes. Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, Joel 3, all good places to, to go. And then 75 days later, the millennial kingdom begins. So what do we do with this? I don't know, where do, where, where, where do we begin? <laughs> there's, a, there's a school of thought among pastors. Don't teach application. You know, in the, in the study of Scripture, there's observation, interpretation, application. There are some pastors who say, don't teach application. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Just just unpack the Scripture and let the Holy Spirit teach the application. Let everybody find their own. And, and I don't know, I'm usually not one of those guys, but tonight I might be. Because there's just so much. And there's so little time. But there's so much. The wrath of God. The enormity of of God's wrath. And to consider that's the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Treading his enemies like grapes in a wine press. Blood everywhere. I worked, I I, I worked for a a poultry processor for a while. And I remember walking out of out of the the processing room sometimes and just the the whole room was filled with blood. And 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 that and that's not even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of Jesus' wrath. The wrath that we were spared, the wrath that he willingly bore. Or or do you look at Jesus' zeal?
1: Jesus fighting
0: for Israel. A lot of times when Christian songwriters are writing songs, they they go to David and Goliath and I've got my own giants. Okay, Goliath was a big guy, but he was one guy. Jesus in his zeal defeats armies, plural. We're facing armies. But the zeal of the Lord is more than enough for all of the forces of darkness that can possibly mount against us, not to mention our own flesh. The zeal of the Lord fighting for us, not against us. Always seeking to lift us up, never to destroy us. Or do you look at the relationship? The lengths that God goes to to bring Israel back. God knew exactly how long he needed to leave them to their own ways. He knew exactly when to regather them in the land. He knows exactly how much chastening it's going to take to break them. And, 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 he, and he says, you know, if, if, if I, I hadn't stopped when I did, the whole world might have been destroyed. Israel would have been destroyed. He doesn't give them any more than they need, but he gives them absolutely as much as they need. What? To come home. The lengths that God goes to to have his people back, to have his friend back, to have his wife back, and to think God doesn't love any of us any less. Find your own application because, because the, the story that we're reading here is the story of God's love expressed in so many different ways. Surely one of them is the way that you need to hear tonight. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, my brothers and sisters online, my brothers and sisters listening on the podcast or, or, or however they're getting this. Lord, I thank you for the grace that, that they've given as we've We've plowed through a lot, a lot, a lot of verses. But man, to see this in panorama,
1: to get the helicopter perspective
0: of how carefully you orchestrate these events and how how you keep your promises. You tell us in Amos you do nothing without first revealing it through your servants, the prophets, and, and how true that is. 2,700 years ago, you laid out in exacting detail how this story of Israel comes together, the story of their reconciliation with you and yours with them.
1: And Israel's story is our story. Thank you for giving us, Israel that we can learn from them, glean from them, and rejoice that you've met us here and you've met us now, and that we've gotten
0: to avoid so much of what they'll need to endure. Thank you that you chased us and pursued us and met us with this great salvation. We rejoice in knowing you.